0: Church family, it's a pleasure for me to be back with you. Um, This is a regular rotation that uh, Pastor Ronald and the um, elders have asked that I would take on, and it's such a pleasure for me to open the scriptures with you this morning. We're we're going to be looking at the text that Pastor Ronald um, just read, and it's my pleasure first as we've opened and marked that place to um, just lead you again in prayer. It's just one of the customs I particularly like as we approach God's Word Um, to lead you one more time in adoring him and asking for his enlightenment through the Spirit. Father, I'm praying that the words of my mouth and the reflection, the meditation, the thoughtful processing by your people will glorify you. That, Father, we will hear those things that um, you want us to know. That you would take out of your word, as it were, treasures, uh, jewels and gems, Uh, that we really need to hide within our own heart, to take in as treasure to our own life, to treat like bread that is going to nourish us and light that is going to direct us and hope that is going to comfort us. And truth that is going to challenge us all according to our need and all by your plan and purpose so that we are conformed more into the likeness of your Son, walking in the light as he is in the light. Knowing not only that we are forgiven for sins of the past, but we are being matured, developed, prepared, sanctified, the scripture says, set apart for you by how we respond to your truth as we embrace it, receive it, feast on it, apply it, practice it. And the outcome is you're glorified and we are benefited, satisfied, and encouraged. So help us in that pursuit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the passage of scripture that's in front of us, it's really what would be called a prologue. In a sense, John is writing this first chapter, introducing to us what the rest of the book is going to be about in terms of its substance and its narrative and how he's going to illustrate it through Particular pictures that were given accounts as it goes in a linear fashion as we meet Jesus here to his crucifixion and then resurrection. And in this passage of scripture here in chapter 1, this prologue, what is happening now in verses 6 through to the end of 13 is it's, it's almost a setup like a court drama where you and I are invited to come and see two witnesses... And to render a verdict. We're like the jury. We're going to be told some things. But the purpose of those things is is what John says. Not just to inform us. But at the end of the book as Pastor has reminded us. It is so that we would believe in what it is God has done through these witnesses. So the verdict is are you going to receive this? And are you going to act on it? Are you going to receive the message of these true, two true witnesses? Because what they are going to tell you is not only going to be cognitively important in your brain, it's going to be transformative of your life. Because it is going to ask you to make a decision that is, of course, mental, mind, cognitive, But it is more like a marriage, as it were, that you realize you're not just answering a few questions that someone is asking you as you unite. You are making a promise to journey through life based on your decision. So it has huge ramification. And and one of the issues can be that we need to see that the life that we have in Jesus, while well, it's written here in this passage, to begin at a point in time, does not leave us where we are, as dependent as it were, constantly to be rescued, but it pulls us out of that rescue, changes our identity, and invites us into a life Giving relationship with God, who becomes our father, we his forever family, and we begin to do something called grow. I often like to say to folks, God loves you just the way you are. And then add this, and he loves you too much to leave you there we definitely need to understand that the entrance into the kingdom is through simple childlike faith as we've been singing. But it is not the only action faith requires. Because if we believe him, we will then do what he says. And he doesn't just say to us, believe, trust, He says, certainly believe and trust, and now go on and practice in faith and belief so that you do what? You grow up. You mature. You allow the light of the Lord and the life of him to enter you, and it changes everything about you. It changes you mentally, what you think, what you value. It changes you emotionally. It undoes some of the damage that you've experienced It releases you from the expectation and traditions that have been handed to you by the world and families of origin. And it sets you on a course of delightful discovery. And this is the truth for the Christian who is growing in grace. They will say to the Lord in faith and in this confidence, I need you today as much now as the very first day I received you. But I know that I'm not who it was that you found back then. I'm growing in grace and in knowledge and in practice, but I need you to be who you've always said you are, my God and my Lord and my leader that began the day I trusted you and you have never once failed me right? What we're doing in John chapter 1 is is probably this book of John was written well after all the events that the book is going to describe meaning that Jesus has already died and been raised, uh, the apostles have been sent out on their mission, the world is starting to be evangelized, but the thing we need to remember is it's it's, it's in its nascent, it's, it's, it's just new form, formed years. Probably the church exists without question in Jerusalem, the first church. Likely the church in Antioch exists. Likely Paul has been out on some of his missionary journeys as John is setting pen to paper and writing this. But you understand, there are very few churches. There are very few gatherings like this in the Mediterranean world, in the world as they understand it. So as people are going to receive this and and realize that Jesus has the world on his heart and mind, God has sent Jesus into the world, most of the people who will read this and say, well, what world are we talking about? And the answer is, well, the world they know. That's the beauty of the scripture is we read it and we see, oh, the world is the Roman world and maybe... Some have an idea of where Alexander the Great has taken and it's bridged over to India and down into north of Africa. But the wilds of Africa are undiscovered, right? China is yet to be fully understood or known. Asia is a mystery. Uh, And we look, North Europe is the wilds. And nobody knows about North or South America or the islands like Australia. But the truth of the scripture is world really means world in totality even though we are tempted to think of the world through our own lens. God will expand that, that's not a problem. But in this passage of scripture as a prologue, we're introduced to the outcome that John wants through the entire book. In other words, the purpose of his writing engages us as the readers right at the start. Because we know these are the things, as Pastor has told us in John 20, these are the things that Jesus has done. He's done many, many other things. But John is saying, I'm selecting a few of them, seven miracles, in fact, and some narratives around these things, and some stories of interactions with people that weren't miraculous, like Nicodemus and the woman at the well, and others, and some treaties on discipleship, what it means to follow on the the vine or the branches, and all of that is coming But he says the reason is to produce in you faith. A choice that you'll believe. Now now we're introduced to that in the passage that he he read. And we know because not only is Jesus the light and the life of men in verse 4. But we're also told at the end of verse 13 That we're born of God. And it's in verse 12 that says, everyone who believes in him. Everyone who receives him. And receiving here is the idea of our taking to ourselves something that we value. Not in the intent to only possess it as an object, but to receive it in benefit. We're embracing it. We're holding it. We want it. If it was food, we want it to nourish us. If it was perfume, we would want to wear it. If it was clothing, similarly, we would put it on. We are going to take and receive it with that idea of using it. Possessing it for its purpose. And we're being told that's exactly why Jesus came. To accomplish the purpose God sent him for, and if you think about it this way, for you. For you. When I was a boy of uh, about nine, maybe eight, you know, as you move away from these dates in time, they become a little murky, um... Sometimes someone knows you better than you know yourself and will remind you that you're telling the story with the wrong date attached. And really, the date doesn't matter as much as the story I'm going to tell you. Uh, I was a boy in a church like this, uh, not that large a congregation, but it had a ministry to boys and girls called, appropriately, Boys and Girls Club. And the boys met as boys, and the girls met as girls. And on this particular evening... Our pastor at the time came, and he showed a flannel graph. You know, a flannel graph is oh boy, as modern as it got back then. It was fuzzy pictures that stuck to a, a flannel sheet. Sometimes that was painted, sometimes not. Some of you were nodding, going, oh, I remember those good old days, I remember that. And you used your imagination as the characters moved. And he told the story of Jesus' death. But the way he told the story was this, if you were the only boy in the world, God would still have to give his son for you. Now That's the truth. Jesus is the light and he's the life of men, every one of you. And you see what our pastor did at that point was he made it so personal. He challenged me to understand that I was the object of Jesus coming into the world. Now, in my little eight-year-old brain, I didn't process all of that, but I can tell you I experienced it. Emotionally, it grabbed me by the throat and shook me to the little core of my life because I heard him and I believed for the first time if I was the only boy in the world, God sent me. His son for me. So personal, so direct, so emotional. Such important knowledge, so cognitive, so logical, so simple. And then he said, now any of you who want to know how to receive the life that Jesus Christ died to give you, that God wanted you to have, come up to my office and talk with me. Well, I think the office might have been out of the basement of the building we were in, a climb of 15 stairs. I thought it looked like 150 because I realized the conviction of my state that I was without life and without help and without hope was really on my shoulders. And I was shaking. little eight-year-old, I was really affected. And I knocked on his door and he asked me to come in, and I came in, and I think the room was like 80 feet square. I've gone back and seen it, it's less than eight feet square. But all of the impact of the import of the decision that you're making rested on my heart. And he led me in a very simple prayer. And I felt, wasn't true, but I felt like something fell off my back. Oh, it was all the weight I was carrying up those stairs. It was all this knowledge that I wasn't in the right group. I wasn't in the family. I hadn't, and listen guys, I, church family, I shouldn't call you disguised. guys. I, I, was, I was raised in a Christian home. I had read all the Bible stories. I'd gone to Sunday school every week. My parents used to say, before you were born, you were carried to church. But I hadn't yet come to a personal point of faith. Now, some of you, that might be true. You may have been in churches like this or this one for a very long period of time, but you know as soon as I'm talking this way that I'm describing where you are and where you need to move from and a place you need to come to. The place of faith. And these verses may well be the invitation that you've been waiting for. Because you are being asked, along with all of us that are listening and studying today, you are being asked to become a jury and listen to the evidence that two key witnesses are going to present. The first one is found in verse 6. John chapter 1 and verse 6 um, says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Pretty simple, right? Right? Now, this book, as I'm saying, was written after the fact, and everyone would have known as they read this, he's talking about John the Baptist, not John the writer, but John the Baptist. It can get a little confusing when you just have these Johns coming in and out. Now, who's he talking about? Well, what's clear is the context makes it clear. Because John the Apostle would say, well, I was sent from God, but not as I'm writing this. I'm writing this now because I was sent by God, but I wasn't sent knowing it from the beginning, If I was sent by God that way, I would have been looking for Jesus, but it was Jesus who came looking for me. Whereas John knew from the time he was raised through his parents that he was appointed by God. He was told the story. Uh, He had a rather miraculous conception himself. He was born by a woman who was beyond childbearing, and his father was made mute and dumb until he was born. I mean, there were some miracles around it, and those would have been told not only by his parents, but by all the family that knew him. So there was a man sent by God, Powerful. We know who this is. It's John. It's John the Baptist. And he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. Believe what? Well, believe the message that John is giving, but also the, the, the meta-message that's over it, because this is what John did. He, he, was, a, he was an amazing prophet. And he spoke in an area of the wilderness down near Jordan, whether he was an east sider up the Jordan Valley, sort of towards Jordan itself these days, or whether he was on the West Bank over closer, we we don't really know. But what we know is he was a celebrity prophet. He was an unusual guy and people came out to see him because he wore really rough clothing made of camel hair. I don't know if you've ever walked on a camel hair carpet, but it's tough. And he ate something called locusts, which are grasshoppers, insects, and honey. Not my prefer, preferred diet, to be honest. I'm, I'm not really into crunchy insects. Insects at all. In my experience, I've eaten a few things that creeped and crawled. You know, the palm worm in Africa. I just popped one in to say I'd done it. Uh, and I, I was hoping to keep it down. You know, it has a yo-yo effect for a while there. Just because you're not used to eating these things. But here, this was his diet, so he was a little unusual, and people came. But I'll tell you really why he came, was not just because he was unusual and lived in the desert and sort of this wandering holy man. His message was gripping. He was speaking with the authority of God, and he was saying to people, God is on the move. He's doing something in our day. Get ready for the Deliverer. And you are not ready. You are in your sin. You need to confess and get right with God and start fresh with a baptism of repentance and renewal. That's what he preached. And thousands came. Religious leaders came. Rank and file came. They came in crowds to hear John and to be baptized by him in preparation for what God was going to do. Amazing. Amazing. The second thing that John was to do was to identify and recognize the deliverer when he came. And so on one particular day, we're going to read it later in the book. John is there and Jesus is there. And he says, behold, the man of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He fingered him. He pointed him out. He said, this is the guy. And some of his own disciples, people who had been following John, stopped and followed Jesus. And people were actually questioning him. And we hear in the book, he ultimately comes to this amazing statement. He must increase. I must decrease. So the question is, was John a faithful witness? Did he do what God said he should do? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, he did it. He lived unto God. He declared the message. He prepared the people. And he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. First witness. This is the one that God has sent. And you need to believe him. Because I am not the light, but he is the light. I've helped you get ready, but he gives you life. And so there's the first witness. And you've listened to him. I am not the light. God has given me a position of prominence. God has given me a position of influence. But I want to use all those things to tell you Jesus is the one to follow. So did they? Well, you're going to find out in the rest of the book. Because here's the stealer, the spoiler. If you don't want to hear, close your ears. Not so much. As a matter of fact, one of the leaders, and it didn't create a huge rebellion, is going to chop off his head. It's an awful account. So now we need to meet the second witness. So we have this powerful prophet who preached to the crowds, John the Baptist, and we read in this gospel, he was a trailblazer. He made the people ready. And we read that the majority of the people who were baptized did not accept Jesus as the promised Messiah, but they turn away from him. It's a shock, actually. Because we see the lengths to which God went and the miracles that were around his birth and the amazing testimony of the man's life. And the people look at it and go, mm, not so much. Now I want to put a pin in that and just say this to you. This reveals something about the nature of God that is remarkable and should pause you in your tracks. He's remarkably gentle. Incredibly patient. He will let you choose. Think about that. Really? Really? He does all of these things to demonstrate his love for you and wants you to respond in the same love rather than make you believe without the engagement of your will. No, he wants a different kind of relationship. One that is predicated on your willing choice. Amazing, isn't it? It's the nature of God that he's in this to win you and to woo you and to walk with you. Because this is the thing that impacts me, and I've learned to say this in other contexts. What you win people with is what you win them to. And he wins you to a life of love. Not to a life of rules and regulation. If you adopt rule and regulation, it is because you choose to love him. But rule and regulation never increases your love. It is your love that will constrain and direct your life. It's why when you stand in front of a preacher when you marry and you say, forsaking all others, I will be laminated to you for life. It's a choice that constrains you. Right? And frees you. And fills you with completeness and fullness. So here's the first witness what are you going to do with what is written here? And at this point in the drama, one expects there should be gasps of incredulity. Don't you love that word? Meaning people are so incredulous, they can't believe people aren't responding to this first witness, and they go, what? That's the, that, that's the response that John is setting us up for. I, I mean, it's so clear. How, how can you not say yes? Well, as you meet people in the... Gospel, you'll discover all kinds of reasons they don't say yes. Power, control, independence, indifference. Right? Outright rebellion. I mean, there's all of these reasons in the human condition. The same reasons, if we go back to the illustration of marriage, why didn't you stay married to this lovely woman? Uh, You understand what I'm saying? You made a choice not to fulfill your vows. I mean, you might blame it on her, but really, the matter rests with you. So dramatically, powerfully, eloquently, John leans into us as the jury journey, and he then introduces us to Christ in, in those next few verses. Because he says in verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Now that's an unusual expression. What does it mean to be coming into the world and not came to the world? What is this sort of long journey? Well, The issue is what we're going to discover in the rest of the gospel. Is that there's controversy about Jesus. He's arrived, he's present, he's demonstrating, he's witnessing. And yet people are standing back. And we're going to hear some more drama of that in just a moment as we, we unpack this. So we're introduced to this new witness, the one who gives light to every man. And verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Big gasp! What? It begs when you say this. It's so, so bald and plain and, and, and right in front of you. The world maker came to the planet that he designed and that he made and he sustains. And the very creatures he made went, no, I don't think so. Yes, that's that's it. They turned their back on him. So you see how this prologue is introducing us to the controversy we're going to read and the division that's around Jesus, that he's such a polarizing central figure, that he's come, he's come as life, he's come to out of love, he's come to sacrifice himself, and we have all of humanity, including everything that he's made, crossing their arms, sitting back and going, well, I don't think I'm really persuaded. Now it's even... Worse, it comes down to an even deeper point, because he says in the next verse as you read it, he came to that which was his own, meaning Israel, the chosen people, the people of the covenant of the Old Testament, all of the journey, all of the provision, all of the miracles, all of the endurance, all of the patience, all of the persistence, all of the benefit, and what did those people of the covenant say about Jesus? A big... I don't think so. That's what we're reading. He came to his own. The very people who have the scripture, the very people who know what it is because they continue to keep the festivals. They keep the Passover. They know once we were enslaved, and now we are free. Once we were no people, and now we're this people. Once we had no hope, now we have this hope. And out of the throne of David will come a king who will establish his rule and reign forever, and we long for the day. And actually, they didn't want what God was offering they wanted something substantively less. Why? Well, because they could feel better about themselves and maintain this freedom and independence under all the governance of God. You see, what they did not want was God in their life. What they really wanted was the benefit of God at a distance. Really. The story that really helps us understand this is called the prodigal son. And we go, oh yeah, we know all about the prodigal, the one that went away. Well, that's the Gentiles, really. What we often forget is the second son. The one who stayed home and has a pout when the young one comes home. Because dad has squandered so much on him. He sees the generous nature of God. And this is his argument with God. When did you ever give me a calf or a kid or, you know, or a youngling, a yearling, so that I could have a party with my friends? Just notice the attitude. But this boy of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours, having spent everything, and now he's destitute, comes back and you throw a party. But you notice he doesn't say, why can't I have a party just like my brothers with everybody coming? He says, why don't you give me what I want and let me do it on my own terms. Do you see the difference? You see, what people really want is $3 worth of God in a paper bag. Enough to make them comfortable and warm for the day but not to love their neighbor, not to forgive the person who's offended them, not to practice the grace they've received. They simply want $3 worth of God in a paper sack. And God says, I can't do that. It's all or nothing. I I don't want hangers-on that fall off the back of the bus when we're going on our journey to heaven I want you to be a son and a child and have the life and share my purpose and plan forever. I want all of you, and I've given all of me for you. That's the witness. So in this passage of Scripture, as we're moving to the final statement here, it says, yet in verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he, be- he gave the right to be born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's or a human will, but born of God. See, in this passage of Scripture, we, we've got all of these things that are cascading. You don't become born into the family of God by anything that you do as a human being. It doesn't come from the right parentage. You don't have to be born to a royal family. Some of you are saying, well, I wish. Well, have you read the news about the royals lately? I mean, you begin to see what privilege actually opens you to. I, for one, am grateful that I didn't have all of those alluring temptations. I don't know what I would have been with all of those. Honestly, I don't think any of you do either. Um, we might clack our tongues and wag our fingers and say, Stupid boy, truly, stupid man, truly. Why didn't you run for the hills? You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we say to God, man, I wish I had a better family, somebody that just loved me. He wants that for you too. As a matter of fact, he will exchange your family for his forever family and you will experience love and grace and acceptance the way you never have before. So much so that you can release your family from a debt that they can't pay. It's called forgiveness. I'm making it sound easy. It's anything but easy. There is a process involved. You may need counsel and support. You understand. But he's offering you a way out of darkness into light and life. And the big question is, will you receive it and take it in? And if you've received... And taking it in. Are you walking in the light? As he is in the light. Are you inclining your heart towards him? Are you pushing yourself forward that you might receive the name of God, the identity of God, the blessing of God, the fullness of God, the hope of God, and in the life to come? Everlasting life. That's what he wants you to have. And he sent you two witnesses. John to prepare the way and Jesus to deliver the outcome. And he says, choose. Choose today. Choose now. Choose here in this building. Choose at home in the comfort of the place that you're currently sitting. Choose as Joshua did at the close of his book. And he said, who are you going to follow? And and he said, as for me and my house, we're going to follow the Lord. And the people go, oh, yes, we're going to follow God too. And then you realize that what's involved is really doing what he says. And he lays it on them and says, you don't know what you're committing to. You don't understand what it is that you are now surrendering to. Like when you're married and the pastor says... Forsaking all others, cleave to your wife alone. That's what the trust and the commitment and the covenant is with God. And maybe that's why your life might lack what I would call the joyful experience. Because you want what God will do for you but you're not all in for what God asks from you. Jesus at one point turns in Luke and says to the people that are listening to him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? It's a big challenge, isn't it? Because faith leads to obedience. Obedience requires a surrender a a, a willingness to allow him to lead and we to follow. It means that we recognize that we were bought at a price, and the price means we were rescued out of darkness and slavery, and we come now into his presence, and he treats us as sons, but we actually understand. I would have no life had you not paid my price. And because you have paid my price, I am all in is that your challenge as a follower? Do you realize that you've put some no-go zones that you're following this far, but you're not going to surrender that far? Is God speaking to your heart not because He wants more from you, He wants to give more to you, but what you're holding on is the barrier to that blessing and grace He wants you to have? You understand. We're saying, no, 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 he, he's, he's going to narrow my life, he's going to ruin my life, he's, he's going to require, it. I, I'm going to miss some things. Dark things, right? Black things, wounding things, hurtful things. Things independent of how he's made you and what he wants for you. Let's be real with this. He does not want to constrain your life. He wants to set you free. But the cost of that, and it's a serious one, is he gave all of him for you. He wants all of you to trust him and follow. You understand the challenge I've laid before you. You understand the two witnesses that are standing in front of you, one who has prepared the way, the other who is the way. And he's saying to us today, choose. Father God, we pray that as we're before you with this few verses of prologue that are preparing us for the future of the gospel, that, Lord, you would continue the call in our hearts That you would say to us, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He's coming to us saying, knock, call, and I will answer. He's saying to us, follow me. He's inviting us into his forever family. Lord, would you help us to hear the invitation in fresh, powerful ways and answer your call? Yes, Lord, I receive you. And all of me will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.